All right. Hey, grab a Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, we have them in the back. And uh, we're going to 2 Peter chapter 1. And today we're going to be talking about um, self-control. Yeah, boo. All right. You know, and uh, why would we want to talk about self-control? Because obviously we're going to talk about it from this perspective, is how do you get more of it? Okay? Uh, because we all love control and kind of unpack, well, what does that mean to be self-controlled? I thought we were supposed to be like God-controlled and spirit-controlled, you know? What, what is this all talking about? So we're going to unpack that uh, today. But let's start with why should we care to unpack that? I mean, why should it even matter? To help us with that, Michael Gilbert's going to come up and uh, answer all our questions. Give it up for Michael Gilbert. He went and bought a new shirt knowing that he was going to be in front of you today. That's not true. He just found out a few minutes ago. I'm joking. All right. But 2 Peter chapter 1, Michael's going to explain everything to us by reading this passage. Because before you read it, what we've been talking about is, and asking the real serious question for the last couple of weeks, is change really possible? Like, do you know anybody that's really ever changed? Uh, and you may say yes, but they're few and far between. But what about you? Do you think it's possible for you to change? Because we often believe that if I could just change in this area of my life, whether it be spiritual, physical, emotional, relationally, then that's going to get me to a place to where I'm going to be much happier and richer and more fulfilled. And so we try to change, and we find that we are often the very thing that keeps us from changing. And so the question is, how do we change? Is change possible? We've been talking about that, and uh, we've talked about how Christ is not just, uh, he's not the encourager of change, he's not our cheerleader of change, although, I'm sorry I put that image in your head right now, that Jesus was a cheerleader, but, uh, but he really, he's the agent of change. Matter of fact, uh, Scripture says that when I become a Christian, the old is gone, the new has come. This isn't something that gradually takes place, it's something that, bam, it happens when I become a believer. That the old is gone. And then when Christ went to the cross, he took all my sins with him. When he rose again, when I receive him and his newness of life, I too receive newness of life. And I live a new life. Change has already happened. Matter of fact, uh, how do we put this? Most of the Christian life, if not all the Christian life, is coming aware of what's already true. That may be kind of a bold idea for you to think about, to wrap your hands around that what we're going to be talking about today is not trying to find something new, but opening our eyes to what's already there, okay? Okay, i got a lot more to say about that, but I want Michael to say something about it. So what do you think, Mike? I think we could go to 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9. You're a wise man. <laughs> uh, all right, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Okay, Let's not, because remember we said his divine power, not my power. His divine power has given me everything. Now, you can underline that in your Bible. If you're not allowed to write in your Bible, go get one of our Bibles and underline it. Because that includes how much of stuff? It's 11 o'clock, man. Come on, guys. Hello? Everything. Everything. Okay, thank you, Michael. He now is y'all's representative. I love that. So if that's everything... Then if, 
And wait a minute, let me get my head around this. As a Christian, Christ brought about all the change. He's the creator of change, the sustainer of change, and the finisher of change. So I've got everything I need for life and godliness. Really? Why don't I understand? Why don't I live in that? Why is that not my personal experience that I've got everything? Come on, man. You know, seriously, as a Christian, why is it that I I often feel like I'm lacking or I'm wanting or I don't have? And he says I have everything. So why don't I experience that? Michael, why don't we? (laughs) Keep reading. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And we're not going to talk about this corruption, but what we are going to talk about this morning is that when I participate with the divine nature, something happens. My eyes begin to open to see that I really do have everything I need for life and godliness. It's all through the Scripture. Paul says, wake up, sleeper. That's what he says to the church. Wake up and see what you have. Not what, wake up and go get something. Wake up and see. He talks a lot about that in Ephesians where he prays the eyes of our hearts would be open so we know the riches and the hope and the power that is ours in Christ Jesus, the same power that rose Christ from the dead. You remember all this? Okay, so keep, keep reading, Mike, because here's the question I have for you. How do I participate in the divine? If that's the key that helps me to see, how do I do that? <laughs> For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Thank you, Michael. Beautiful. I think he did a great job, and I think he looks good this morning. I like that gray, man. That's working for you. (laughs) I like it. Paul, or Peter, says, how do I participate in the divine? By faith. Now, we talked two weeks ago about how faith is not heaven money. It's not Jesus' currency. It's not what I give to God in exchange for everything. Actually, faith is something that he gives to me. It's a gift from God to me. In fact, if you can imagine, it's like God giving me hands now to grab his grace, to to get my arms around everything are to receive everything he has for me through the gospel, through grace. Well, okay, so that's given to me. So what do I do with this faith? And we talked last week about, or two weeks ago, about goodness. We add goodness to our faith, that uh, we follow where the Lord is going because that's a question of trust, and trust is the foundation of every relationship. Then last week we talked about that we add knowledge to our goodness, that now we begin to understand Why is God wanting me to have this view of morality? Why does he want me to have this view of social justice? Why does he want me to have this view of cultural redemption? You know, I'm beginning to understand that. But knowledge is more than just information. It's also about intimacy. It's about, you know, in the Old Testament it says a husband knows his wife. In the same way, we know God. God is inviting us into this very intimate relationship with him. We talked about that last week. Now we continue the process because, remember, we're, we're participating in the change that has already taken place with us, that we add to our knowledge self-control. So let's take a few minutes to unpack what that means, and then we're going to come to the table, okay? I don't know about you, but uh, I want you to think for a minute some areas in your life that you feel like you need more self-control. 
Uh, maybe it's in the area of money. You feel like you have no control there whatsoever. Now, if you have a pen, I want you to write this down because I'm going to challenge you with something at the end of this talk. Maybe your area of uh, self-control is maybe your emotions. Maybe emotionally you feel like that you just have no self-control, whether it's down or whether it's up or whether it's anywhere in between. Maybe you're a rageaholic that you just lose it on anything. Maybe you have no emotions whatsoever and you wish you had more emotions. Maybe uh, food. Maybe uh, time that you feel like you have no self-control when it comes to the management of your time that you're always struggling with time management. Maybe uh, if you have kids here, maybe you wish you had more self-control when it came to being a parent. Maybe for you the issue, can you all just kind of tell I'm just throwing the seeds everywhere. <laughs> so maybe for you it's alcohol. Maybe you feel like you have no self-control. Or maybe sexually you feel like, man, I am so out of control in that area of my life. I have no self-control. Maybe I didn't uh, name what your problem is or your struggle is. But let's talk about self-control. Uh, two weeks ago, my daughter, uh, we were sitting around on a Saturday morning, and uh, I confessed to her, my two boys are at college, and I confessed to her that I've never, like, made a care package to send to somebody at college. Have y'all, some of y'all have done that, right? And I said to her, I want to I make, like, like, let's make a bunch of cookies and send it to my boys. And uh, she said, great. And she goes, what kind of cookies do you want to make? And so we started talking about our favorite cookies and, you know, chocolate chip or sugar cookies or, you know, whatever. And I was like, no, no, no. This is, this is going to be so over-the-top outrageous that the boys are actually getting a care package from their dad. Like, I made cookies. You got to understand, I don't cook, all right? And so I said, I, let's get on the Internet and let's find the most decadent, cookies that we can possibly find. What were they called, Maggie? Chunky chocolate gobs. Yes. They had candy bars in them. They had chocolate chips in them. They had, wow, what all? It was Oreos, sugar, cocoa, cereal, and our fourth child, you know? Here's the thing is that when you get this stuff going, it's like just this brown mound of just yummy goodness. And is sugar your thing? Okay, sugar's my thing. All right, and I just love desserts. And you cannot stir that and say, uh, I'm not going to taste that. And so the spoon, I mean, you know, it's all in the family. Who cares, you know? Spoon, the bowl, the fingers. By the time the first batch comes out of the oven, you're so sick of that cookie. You can't, I don't care, just put them in the bag and mail them. Because we're just, there's just absolutely no self-control. Because you're just in it. And you just feel like, I got to be in it. And are there ever times in your life where you experience something like that and then you have a regret? You know, because I'm sitting on the couch two minutes later, and I'm in a sugar coma, you know, and I wish I wouldn't have eaten all that, sh that cookie batter. What about you? You know, in those moments, we'll just call them this morning, those morning after moments. That's when we start thinking about self-control. 
And we have to be careful because we have a tendency to think about it wrongly. We think, if I could just find more willpower, if I could just have a deeper commitment to doing the right thing, if I could just find some tool somewhere that would help me empower myself even more. The problem I have with willpower is it's, it's kind of like this treadmill that I run hard on, and then it gets hard, and then it gets faster, and I run even harder. And when I fail, I'm not just failing at eating too much cookie dough. Now I'm failing the commitment that I made. I'm failing the sense of I thought I had the willpower to do this. And this is where it gets dangerous, guys. And all kidding aside, this is really where it gets dangerous because now certain things start to creep in that, that want to shape our lives. Those two things that come in are guilt and shame. Because when we fail, and I'm not just talking about cookies, maybe your failure of lack of self-control is having damaging effects on your spirit or maybe your relationships. And when you fail, you feel guilty, and maybe rightfully so because you've done something wrong. And, but instead of doing with that guilt what the gospel tells us to do with that guilt, because Scripture says that I've been forgiven for all my sins, right? How many? Okay, how many in the future? Wow, is that true? So repentance now isn't about me getting fresh forgiveness from God. Repentance now is about a restoration of sanity in my relationship with God. All right? So, but if I hang on to guilt, and here's the interesting thing, is I will hang on to guilt because then I'll start to use guilt as my new motivator to get more willpower. Because the longer I feel guilty, the more committed I am to never doing that again. But Scripture says that's worldly guilt, not spirit guilt. Spirit guilt leads me to the throne of grace, to where I'm restored to sanity. Worldly guilt takes me away from the throne of grace and takes me completely into myself. Because here's what worldly guilt does. And this is killer. I mean, seriously. Worldly guilt loves to put its hands all over me. And when it does, it brings shame. See, guilt is I've done something wrong. Go to the throne of grace. Shame is I am something wrong. Let me give you an example. Imagine for a moment that you have a magic number in your mind about what you should weigh to be an acceptable person. We all have kind of a number, don't we? Well, when I weigh that, I feel the best. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm healthy. and You know, my clothes fit better. We put that number up there because we say that's when I'm important. Because when I overweigh that number, it's easy for me to start shaming myself to get back down to that number. I shame myself by saying I don't have any value. I shame myself by saying you're such a loser. I look in the mirror and go, you idiot. Why did you eat all that? that cookie dough. Instead of saying, wow, you're crazy, you ate all that cookie dough, now I'm defining or assigning identity to that person in the mirror. And when shame comes in and starts to change who I believe that I am, it may give me a lot of power to lose weight to get back to that number. But it's not enough power to go where we're going today. Guilt and shame will never take you half the journey of where we're going today. Because what we're talking today is about freedom about what we already have instead of something we're getting, okay? So let's talk about what gospel is, what gospel self-control is. You with me? Have I lost you? Is everybody confused? Anybody here? 
Hey, okay, wake up. <laughs> First thing you've got to understand, and if you don't get this, then the sermon needs to stop right here. Christ is the author of change. Let's go to Second Corinthians 3.18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed. We're passive recipients of something that is happening to us. We're being transformed. And what are we being transformed into? Into Christ-likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What comes from the Lord? Transformation. And what is He transforming me into? The likeness of Christ. This is what's going on. If you're a Christian, that's what's going on in your life. I've met with Christians who tell me, man, I don't know what's going on with me. I feel miserable. Transformation is what's going on with you. But when we don't know that's what's going on with us, and we said this all the time, it's like the show, I didn't know I was pregnant. You know, the woman who didn't know she was pregnant started having pains and rushed me to the hospital. Hurry, quick, what's going on? I think I'm dying. And she gets there only to find out, no, you're having a baby. Oh. Now compare that to a woman who knows she's pregnant, is anticipating that labor pain, and when it becomes, then there's excitement and lamas and, you know, tennis balls on the back and all that kind of stuff, you know. Because they know what's going on. If you're a Christian here, that's what's going on. Right? And when I step into that reality, guess what Scripture calls that? Sanity. Welcome to sanity. See, self-control isn't keeping yourself from what you really want but rather it is giving yourself completely to what you most deeply desire. That sanity right there takes me into something much deeper than cookie dough. It takes me deep into what is the deepest desires of my life. And guess what? That's where God meets us. Psalm 63, verse 5. David uh, talked about that. He talked about how when he came to the Lord, he said, you know, your love is better than life. Is that just poetry or is that true? Your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. Why? Because your love is better than life. And I will praise you. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My life is going to praise you. My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. I love this right here. This. Just seeing if you're paying attention, all right? My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of chocolate chip cookies. What David is saying is that in the sanity of realizing that God is transforming me, he's calling me into my deepest desires because he's the satisfier of those desires. And David experienced that and shaped his life around that. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, I hope that there is in your mind a memory where you tasted that. Think back. Has there been a time in your life where you have tasted, yes, there was a moment where I knew your love was better than life. Better. But what's crazy is, as believers, we tend to move out of sanity into what? Insanity. We do. And so the call of self-control, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go to the next verse. Ephesians chapter 3 says it a little differently. He, Paul is praying for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that you have power 
And what does he want them to have power for? To grasp how long and how wide and how high and deep and thick and full and everything you can possibly imagine is what? Is this love of Christ. And he says, and, I, the, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Isn't that beautiful? Like, what is love that surpasses knowledge? You know what it is. I mean, you hear about it on the radio all the time, you know? I love you, I love you, and we're like, I can't explain it, you know, I don't have words. Exactly, it's love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be, what, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There it is again, completely satisfied. Your love is better than life, that I'm full. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says it like this, For Christ's love compels us. This word compel, this is really a poor translation of the Greek word that's used in this context because the word compel actually has multiple meanings to it. It actually, in some senses, it means to constrain. It also, in some ways, it's meant to control, (laughs) you know? And actually, the literal translation means to press together with your hands. What does that mean? The love for Christ's love presses me together with his hands. It's the image of taking clay and putting it in the palm of your hand and then taking your other hand and putting it over it and starting to shape it. It's compressing it. It's controlling it. It's imprisoned it. It's, it's, it's just it's working on it. And that's the image of Christ's love for it. That it's not just this sentimental, I went to church today and now I'm going to give a homeless guy a dollar because I'm just compelled because I feel so loving, you know? Not that that's inappropriate, but this is something much deeper that my whole life is being shaped by love. And let me tell you why that's so critically important. Because when I am shaped by love, something is squeezed out of that. And what's squeezed out of that is the imprint of my Savior. And the Bible calls that conviction. That things are pressed on my life that I got a conviction about. That I know, that I know, that I know, that I know. I have a conviction about that. And I will shape my life around that conviction. You know, there are other places in Scripture where we can kind of talk about this whole idea of Christ has changed and His love satisfies me. You know, the prodigal son, when he came home and... He had spent all his dad's money, you know, and squandered it on uh, no self-control whatsoever. (laughs) And he comes home, and he's got his whole speech laid out. And what does his dad do? His dad, what, what does his dad do? He runs to him. He runs to him to give him the back of his hand and said, You loser, you will never come back to my estate. No, he gives him the front of his hand, the shaping part of his hand, and embraces him. And you know what's amazing about that is that the son's act of repentance was to actually let his father love him. Think about it. His dad went and got a ring and put it on his finger. The son had to let him do that. He went and got a robe and put it on his, son, his shoulder sons. The son had to let him do that. Then he, what did he kill? Fatted calf. He threw a big banquet. He said, you're hungry. Come on, we're going to invite everybody and we're going to throw a feast so that you can be satisfied. And so then he said to his son, Come and feast at the goodness of your father and be fully satisfied. 
Why are we talking about that? Because when I'm loved and I'm satisfied and I'm full, conviction is born. And conviction isn't just knowing the right thing. It's knowing God and knowing ourselves. That's why we say here all the time, when I'm not satisfied, I will respond to everything in my life as a way to get satisfaction. When I'm not satisfied, I will respond to everything in my life as a way to get satisfaction. Let me put it another way. You're either living out of love or you're spending your life looking for love. I'm either living out of a peace that is mine or I'm going to spend my whole life looking for that peace. I'm either living out of joy, everything we need for life and godliness. I'm either living out of joy or I'm looking for joy in everything. And here's what I do. When I'm not satisfied, when I have no conviction, when I have no joy, when I have no peace, when I have no love, and I don't believe I have those things, remember what we said. The person who doesn't have those things is no better than the person that has those things and doesn't believe they have any of them. Right? Remember that? If I don't believe that, I'm going to come and demand that every one of my relationships fill me up. I'll demand that of marriage. I'll demand that of friendships. I'll demand that my job gives me joy. I'll demand from my personal recreation that I find peace. I'll demand from everything to give me the thing that my soul most deeply desires. And guess what? None of them can deliver. None of them. But all of us are young. We've only had so many years to devour the things that promise to give us life but don't. So maybe they will. But maybe they won't. So here is the conclusion of the matter for us. Self-control is birth when in sanity thinking, I let conviction be born in me. Have you ever heard the saying, don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry? Has anybody ever heard that? Why don't you go grocery shopping when you're hungry? You buy it all. <laughs> There's no self-control because everything. And I buy sugar. I'll just be honest with you, all right? Cakes, the bakery. Have you been to the new Kroger's in Green Hills? I mean, they got everything, you know? We're satisfied first. We let conviction, and then we bring it to life. In fact, what begins to happen when I'm over here is a value inversion. Now, let me try to explain. Is that every choice that I make, I'm making based on some kind of value, right? That I have a value, and if I value it enough, I'm going to make the choice for that. And so if I'm making bad choices, and I don't seem to have any self-control, and all I eat is cookie dough, at some point I've got to devalue cookie dough and start valuing broccoli, right? You know, how can that be possible? Because I hate broccoli, you know? And that's what a lot of us, when we come to church, we think that's what's going on here. Okay, he's going to tell me all the things I'm doing are bad, and I'm going to hell, and Jesus, you know, I need love, Jesus, you know, value, inversion. Forget that. Come on, what do y'all want to do tonight? There's no way God could possibly hold any kind of value compared to the things in your life, right? 
Well, if what we just read is true, a part of the problem that's happening in my life is when that transformation has already taken place, there is something rumbling in me that understands deeper value and desires more than anything of my flesh. And when I'm not living in that place, I'm creating war within my soul. Creating war. And we've said it here before. It's like, you know, it's like wearing a jacket too small, you know? Fat guy in the, you know? I'm a new man, and I'm trying to wear the old man's clothes and demand that those clothes satisfy me. They don't. And so in my sane moment, I need to say, oh, yes, he satisfies me. He fills me up. I'm sitting at the banquet table. I'm full. And when I'm full, you know what? I'm looking over there, and I'm going, oh, you guys don't satisfy. I know your game. I know completely your game. So conviction is I'm going to live in love. Sane moment, right? But guess what's coming? insanity. It's coming. It's, it's coming. It's going to come your way. It's going to come my way. That cookie dough is going to mysteriously appear on my counter, and it's going to go, eat me, eat me, you know? I mean, I, and I'm going to be lured in by the sirens of cookie dough, you know? And, and I'm going to be just kind of, oh. So, how do we do the value inversion? Let me give an example. How do you argue I hope that maybe you have somebody in your life that you can fight well with. Uh, But how do you argue? Let me ask it a different way. What is your goal when you argue? Um, I can tell you some of mine growing up. Uh, Growing up in my household, you argue to win. Uh, I was pretty good at it. Uh, And what is win? You argue to get your way. And with two brothers, I always wanted my way, you know? But as I got older, I realized just getting the last Twinkie in the uh, counter uh, wasn't enough. Twinkies just didn't fully satisfy. And so I argued now because I wanted something more than the Twinkie. I want to be right. Winning now became me being right. Can any of y'all relate to that? (laughs) And how do I be right? I just need to make my point. And I got my point, my counterpoints, and my other points. In fact, when I failed to achieve that, sometimes arguing became about nothing more than just an opportunity for me to vent my anger. You know, I'm ticked off, and this situation where we're arguing, thank God this situation has happened because I was looking for a good reason to get mad, and I'm just venting it. Matter of fact, uh, I have a good friend who grew up in a household that, uh, that when they fought and their voices elevated, they would say things to each other that they would never say at any other time in their life. Like, they would just say outrageous stuff to each other, you know? in the heat of the moment. Can you relate to that? This stuff, you know, just comes out. And this is what they started to believe. It's only when people lose their temper that you hear what they're really thinking. And so they would fight until everybody lost their temper so they could find out what's really going on with everybody. (laughs) So their goal in fighting was, let's get to the truth. 
Interesting. But maybe you didn't grow up in a household like mine. Maybe yours was more violent. Maybe the goal of fighting was to dominate, to control, to hurt, uh, to put down, to shut down, to, you know, to self-protect. But maybe it was this. Maybe arguing, the goal of arguing was to never argue at all. We avoid arguing at all costs. I think I've told this before, but we were on a missions trip down in Jamaica with a youth group. And I always believe that mission trips don't really begin until you have your first group fight, you know, where the wheels kind of come off and then you're going like, hey, what's going on, you know? And uh, so we were having our first group fight and I noticed that uh, this girl was over in the corner and she was just kind of shaking and just her head like, I'm like, whoa, what's, we were in Jamaica, so I thought maybe it was a voodoo thing, you know? And uh, so she was, and I took her aside and I said, are you okay? And she goes, they're, they're arguing. They're arguing. Why don't you stop this? Well, they're arguing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, they're arguing. They're going out. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. She goes, no, it, it's never good. Never, never, never good. Shut it down now. Send everybody to the room, please. And she was freaking out because she grew up in a home where you never argued. You avoided it at all costs. You see some of the values in arguing there? Matter of fact, that girl, it's crazy the transformation that God did in her life. Uh, This shy little, never been out of the country, uh, brilliant girl, went to school, graduated, and moved to Saudi Arabia uh, to be a missionary. Can you believe that? I mean, I want to believe that. That may be the transformation God's doing in you, Saudi. Let me ask you, so let's do a value inversion. If I bring this I'm satisfied God is richer than anything. He fills me up. Uh, Conviction. What is my conviction about arguing out of this place? Out of this place, in my sane moment, what is the goal of arguing? Because, hey, guess what, guys? Arguing is not unhealthy. It's not a sin. There's nothing wrong with arguing. There's a lot of things I can do in arguing that are sin. But, hey, having a disagreement with another person, there's nothing wrong with that. We see it all throughout Scripture. It's all in there, so don't be afraid of that. But in the conviction of being fully satisfied, what, what does conviction birth about the goal of arguing out of this place? Let me suggest this. The goal out of this place is arguing, the goal of arguing is for me to love you. What? Well, it's all throughout the Scripture. Think of other people better than yourself. Uh, no greater love than this, and you lay down your life for a friend. When I was growing up with my brothers, I was like, no greater love than for me to lay your life down for me. You know? Are you kidding? If you would have told me in high school that to love my brothers, that the goal of arguing was to love them, I'm like, yeah, I'll love them. I'll, I'll love them with a right and then a left, you know? Because that's the kind of home we had. That was so far from my reality of this place over here. But in this place over here, the Lord says, no, our goal is to love. Hmm. What does that look like? Let me tell you what it doesn't look like. If, if we're arguing and my goal is to love you, it doesn't mean I'm rolling over. It doesn't mean, oh, you're always right. It doesn't mean I'm going to be your doormat. Come and wipe your feet on me. That's not love at all. You know, that's self-destruction is what that is. 
So what does love look like if love is the goal in arguing? It might mean that I love you by listening. It might mean I love you by respecting your point of view. It may mean I love you enough that we need to be honest. It may mean that I love you enough to work hard for healthy resolution. Now, I'm just using this one situation of how this place inverts the value. But I want you to put whatever you want, your sexuality. What do you think the goal of sexuality is? You know, in this place over here, the goal of sexuality, God says it's a covenantal renewal act. Because the goal of it is love. What? That's the deep conviction. Two shall become one. So in marriage, when this act happens, it's a renewal of the vows that we took on the day that we got married that God said two became one. And now I'm reminded it's a renewal of what I know spiritually is true and physically we're experiencing. Right? But what about money? What, what is the goal of money over here in this place of conviction and love? It's not the source of my life, right? Out of this place of conviction, I know that I've been given everything I need for life and godliness, right? So what I have is from him, and what I don't have is his grace. Oh, think about that. Like, but what about your time? I don't have time. Oh, really? Out of this place over here, what is the deep conviction? All my time is his time. It's no longer I, I who live, but him who lives through me, Right? And so now I'm not living on my agenda. I'm now living on his agenda. I was with a group of friends the other day, and we were talking, and I said, so who determines the rhythm of your life? I go, what do you mean the rhythm of your life? I mean, I said, like, like, what's your view of Sundays? Who has the right to say that's how fast you can go and how slow you need to go? Uh-oh. Love does. And it's compressing me. Right? So, I'm over here in the same moment, and I'm starting to see, because through knowledge, I'm beginning to understand what God's done. But wouldn't it just be fantastic if every argument you got into, you remembered that, and you were just like Jesus in every situation. God bless you, and let's close in prayer. We all laugh, and we say, hey, it's not enough just to tell me that. That sermon's not going to change my life. Maybe. Hang on. Because in the same moments, I know the insanity is coming. Proverbs chapter 25. It says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Okay, I'm finishing here, so come with me, all right? What that means is a wall around a city is there to protect the city, right? And guess what? A wall is never built in war. It's not in the middle of a war that a wall is built. Walls are built in times of peace, in times of sanity, in times of celebration and joy, not because uh, it's not good, but because we know the enemy is coming. He's coming, man. And you know, there's never more motivation to build the wall than when you see the enemy on the horizon, but then it's too late. So we have to come over here and be constrained by love to be motivated to say, I've got to build the wall to protect not in the middle of war, but in the middle of sanity, not insanity. Let's, let's, let me give you an example because there's no way I can speak into where you need self-control this morning in every situation. So I'm going to have to ask you, remember that thing you wrote down or those things you wrote down at the beginning of the service? 
What is it going to look like for you in the sanity of I am, I am beautifully and perfectly loved, and that love is compressing and constraining me, that I am so fully satisfied that when we look at the insanity, we can build walls against that. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to arguing. The goal of arguing is love. What's a wall that I can build? Well, I'm married, and Renee and I's uh, relationship is probably the most intense relationship in my life. Like, you know, anybody that's married here, that's the person you're closest to. Uh, Let me tell you some of the walls that we have. Wall number one, because here's what happens is you you can be right, but you're never right at the top of your lungs, especially in a relationship. Maybe in the car by yourself when the radio's gone, but not with another person, all right? So if you want to ever have a relationship with another person, you need to understand that you can be right at the top of your lungs, but you're never right at the top of your lungs. So we had to build a wall that protected us from getting to the place in our relationship where we hurt each other, where I wasn't loving you anymore. I'm loving me more than I'm loving you. Here's one wall in the sanity. (laughs) Hey, you know what? When it feels unsafe, and you know what I'm talking about? When this conversation feels unsafe or it feels a little out of control, stop. And both of us have the the button. Stop. (laughs) Do you know how hard that is to do when two people are heated with one another? Hey, we're going to stop now, you know? But over here in sanity, you say, I'm going to build that wall. Can we both agree that I have the right to stop it? Yes, you have that right. Do you have that right? Yes, you have that right. So when you feel unsafe, and I don't have to care what it is, what, what, how, why, what, I don't, you don't need to explain it. If you feel unsafe and you hit the stop button, we're going to stop. So what do we do when we stop? We take a break. We take a break and we cool down. We regain ourselves. We think about what's going on. Maybe we call a friend and we yell at the friend who's not emotionally engaged in the situation that we are with one another. And, hey, I just need to yell at you for a minute. Can you let me do that? That friend, yes. And then, you know, you yell at them and abuse them, and then you come back and have nothing but love for your spouse, all right? But you see, that's a wall. I'm not kidding you. That's, that's an emotional outlet that helps the wall. And then when we come back together, get this. How about praying together? Oh, there's a novel idea. And when you pray together, what do you pray for? Dear God. Would you please change this person I'm married to? No, that's not a good prayer, all right? A better prayer is, please, God, would you allow me to love her more than I love what we're arguing about? And then say it. Hey, before we say anything else, you need to hear this out of my lips. I love you more than I love the thing that we're talking about. Will you believe that? Emotionally? No. Spiritually and intellectually, yes. That's just an example. But guys, you know, you see how those walls protect us in using self-control to live in the knowledge that we are held in the love of Christ and that He loves us and He's presence with us. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So what is yours? Is it your emotions? Is it your kids? Is it parenting? Is it your sexuality? Is it money? Is it time? Is it relationships? Is it work? Where are those areas for you? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to come to the table. 
and I'd like to kind of encourage you. I know that this is a quiet time, and the music's a little slower, and, you know, it's a meditative time, and we do that intentionally because you understand, guys, we don't come to church. We are the church. So as a church, as the church, we worship the Lord. All of life is worship. Our prayer is that you take this experience back to your own private life and that you would really practice contemplative living before the Lord. But I want to encourage you that uh, if you're like me and preparing this, you made a whole list of areas in your life that you failed. Think ways that you've just blown it. And maybe things you've said that have hurt people deeply or things that you have done that has shamed yourself. And guys, we're coming to this table because this table represents the Lord. He gave his life so that we would be forgiven. And I want to encourage you, the first step today is that we would come to this table and we would lay it all down. I mean, come on, guys. Let's put it down here at the table. That, man, I'm not going to live in shame anymore. I'm not living in, in stuff like regret. Because I know that the Lord works all things out for the good, even my deepest mistakes, right? So this regret, this shame, this, you know, false guilt, all this stuff that we carry around with all the things that we fail at, I'm going to challenge you to leave it here because you believe that Jesus paid for it all on the cross. That's the kind of love that he gives us. So I want you to come here and I want you to confess it. Lord, this is what I'm carrying. And this is where I need your grace. This is where I need your love. Okay? And when you take communion, I want you to leave all that crap up here. All right? Then when you get back to your seat and you start worshiping, I want you to ask yourself this question. In the sanity of worshiping the Lord, what is your plan for building walls? It may be to call a friend over and say, help me. It may be to go and spend this afternoon thinking about that while you still feel God's love for you. I'm not sure. But I want you to come up with a plan before you leave here. Not that we're legalistic, but guys, don't miss the opportunity. Because I want you to understand that you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. And the God of the universe says, come and participate with me. Let's dance. Let's pray. Lord, Father, it's a big thing to ask you to come and step into our hearts because they're full of all kinds of regrets and guilt and sin and because we're imperfect, inconsistent, unpredictable at times people. And we desperately need you. So, Lord, prepare our hearts as we come to this table, as only you can do.